morning. My name is Matt. I'm in the Sweetwater MC group. Hey, brother. It's going to be in Mark 2, <laughs> verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclined with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God. Amen. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our school-age kids, right? Yes. Okay. Make sure I didn't hear that wrongly. Uh, school-age kids headed to the back. If you brought a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it up to Mark chapter 2. Uh, the scripture that... Uh, Matt just read, and we're going to continue. It is a big Sunday for us. Uh, we are, I never know if we should say it's our 13th anniversary or 13th birthday. Maybe birthday, because I still feel like uh, we as a church, we're still kind of in that uh, early, awkward, adolescent age as a church. You know, you turn in 13 and 14, and your body's changing, and your voice is changing, and you're figuring out your identity. Um. I love the song we just sang, All Hail King Jesus, and I don't know if there is a better, that song and a prayer, if there's a better song to pray than that very song that through your life, this is an invitation, Lord, through everything in me, can, can I give the ultimate praise to you that you deserve? Over 13 years, we've got so much to be thankful for. Uh, and namely this, this is our heart. <laughs> we were looking at this uh, new space the other day and the groundskeeper came up and he said, he, <laughs> exactly what kind of church are y'all is what he asked me. <laughs> and I, I knew what he meant. He's like, are you guys a cult? Are you? He's trying to get that part. And I said, you know, we're Jesus church. And that's what we are. Um, I pray if you're new here and you just kind of walked in and you're just checking things out that you would leave here knowing um, that our aim is to lift Jesus up today and our singing and our preaching and the announcements even later and our fellowship in between um, that we would really lift him up. We're going to continue in Mark and I'll pause a couple places in here to talk about uh, a little bit more about just kind of the vision of who we are. Um, but I feel like it just lined up perfectly in the next passage that we're focusing on in, uh, in Mark's gospel. As we've been talking through Mark's gospel, we've been talking about this as the real Jesus. Because Mark immediately cuts through all the things and tells us not just the prophecy about who Jesus would be, but who he really is and what he really did. And so there's a constant flow of uh, action events back to back to back of what Jesus actually did. Today's uh, is the same. We see the real Jesus and we see what he's doing. As you heard in the passage that was read, we see the real Jesus inviting others to follow him. We see him upsetting the religious establishment. We see, we see him fulfilling the task in which he was sent of reaching the lost. But I want the focus to be a little bit different today. 
I want to talk about what is what does a disciple of Jesus really look like? Because we see this in Levi. We see as Jesus calls him, we see this in part of this text. Maybe not a comprehensive list of all the things involved, but if we boil them all down to just the very minimal of what does a real disciple of Jesus actually look like? We see this here. A disciple of Jesus hears and follows Jesus. We see a disciple of Jesus does life in some sort of gospel community that their lives are intertwined beyond just waving at each other or beyond just a Sunday morning. Their lives are intertwined together. And that life, as they do life together, is centered around the mission of Jesus. So this is a simple sermon. It's not complex in its arrangement, but it's one of the things that I feel the church in the West, the church in America struggles greatly with. What does it mean to be a disciple? Let's look at that first part, the hears and follows Jesus. We see this in the beginning in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him. Jesus had started with doing some pretty incredible miracles of uh, healing the leper and healing uh, Peter's um, family and, uh, and then he healing the paralytic when everyone watched. That was last week Jason talked about. And so word had spread. So they're all coming to him and, and he's teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. A disciple is one who hears and follows Jesus. And I would say that was the driving force in us starting this church anyway. People ask me all the time, uh, why, why would you start another church in the religious south? And I say, one, because the Holy Spirit led us to. It was um, without argument. If you've ever tried to argue with the Father, um, how'd that go for you? Uh, this is where he was leading us for sure. But second, because I felt like in coming here and has God orchestrated the events, there was a lot of churches, but there was very little discipleship. What does it mean to really be a disciple of Jesus? One that hears and follows Jesus. I told them, I look back at my very first launch team message to the 30 or 40 that gathered as we're kind of assembling this launch team. And I told them the things I didn't want our church to be. We didn't want to create a church just for religious experiences. There's other churches that could do that much better. We didn't want to be the next cool thing on the block where scores of religious people would jump from whatever church that they were attending and then come to us because of the newness or the music or anything like that. We didn't want to be the next cool thing. We, we didn't want to create a church that just rallied people towards charitable causes, some kind of social gospel where we just meet other people's needs. And we think that those causes are greatly important, but those things void of the gospel are, are left wanting in a major way. We didn't want to be the church that just talked about the mission of God, but in the end did nothing to accomplish it. That rallied people just to give to offerings or to show up on serve days. We wanted to participate with God in his mission. We felt called by God to start a church that at its core would be disciples of Jesus who are making disciples of Jesus. 
Now, I'd never been really a part of a church like that that had that clear of a focus. I was at some really good churches, but none of them fleshed out this value like I like we read about in the book of Acts. We read about in Acts 4 as they would do life together and they would so generous to each other. So through a lot of prayer, we started this journey and some family came in those early days to make this happen. And I warned some of those few families that started with us that churches just don't plant themselves. It takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. Anything you start from nothing takes an incredible amount of elbow grease and hard work. As my pitch, I told them, this was my pitch. I could have done better. This was my pitch. You're going to serve longer and harder than you ever have before. You're going to give more than you've ever given. And likely you're going to suffer more than you've ever suffered. And boy, did we. Just in the hard work department, just setting things up and tearing things down every week, unloading the trailer, reloading the trailer in 100 degree heat. We would have August was three shirt Sundays, we called it, because you would wear a shirt, set up, have to change for the service, sweat through that as you tore down in the after, uh, right after church, and then you couldn't drive home that wet, you had to put another shirt on. See, churches just didn't plant themselves. And our people, not only did they serve, but they gave. It brought me tears this week just to think about how much sacrifice. Some people had garage sales and sold stuff on Craigslist. Is that even a thing? Does Craigslist exist anymore? Others cashed out retirement accounts. People took second jobs. Everyone gave, radically gave. There was a number of our people who learned to be percentage givers during this. They had never done that. They had always just kind of tipped God along the way, and they moved from tipping God to being a percentage giver of their income. And then some of them even moved from percentage giving to, to, to generous giving, and then from generous giving to sacrificial giving. God just did so many incredible things. He did so many incredible things in my own heart. But our mission is far from over. This is what we see in Levi here, or Matthew is his other name, that he heard the invitation of Jesus and he turned to follow him. I was thinking, I wonder how many people Jesus had called. Like we see Levi here and we see James and John just a few chapters ago and we'll see a couple others of Jesus walking by and he's inviting them to come and follow him. And we don't know, but it was likely thousands. I mean, there was 10,000 that had at least that Jesus was feeding. And one time he did something similar to that another time. In John 6, after he feeds the, the 10,000 people or so that... They come and they want more food. And when he doesn't give it to him, it says that many left him in John chapter 6. At the end of his ministry on the Mount of Ascension, there were just over 100. There were many who heard the invitation of Jesus, but not many who actually followed him. We see in Levi here, he may have been the most notorious of a center of the 12. He was a tax collector. Now, none of you uh, single people in here that you like hope that one day you'll meet and marry a tax collector, right? This, 
That's not on your hinge profile or whatever they use these days. That's not, I'm looking for an IRS agent. That's not what we're looking for here. But even to the next degree, tax collectors were the most despised people in Israel. They were hated and vilified by all of Jewish society. They, they had this name. They called them the publicans. They were men who had bought tax franchises from the Roman emperor and then extorted money from the people in order to feed the Roman coffers and pad their own pockets. They worked a little bit like a mafia would. They had a strong-armed uh, army behind them, really just a bunch of thugs that would go and, and, and beat and take money from people. They were the most despicable and often the most dangerous people. They, they were hated. And yet he's one that Jesus invites to come and follow him. And at great cost, Levi does this. He left his crooked occupation of collecting taxes for Rome, and he leaves that there and turns and follows Jesus. And this is what a disciple does. At its core, a disciple hears the invitation of Jesus and follows him in obedience. To be a disciple is to be all in with Jesus. Jesus in Luke's gospel uses the metaphor of a one-handed plow. He says no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And what he's trying to communicate and invite us into is that being a disciple is not simply surrendering only the areas of my life that we immediately agree with Jesus on. Like, oh, heaven when I die, perfect, let me get that. Oh, you're offering a little peace and a little joy. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get those things. Maybe a little wisdom here. I want some of that. It's not like this buffet that we would go and pick and choose the parts of Jesus' offer that we, that we wanted. No, to say yes to Jesus is to say yes to him, to make him Lord of everything, to be all in with him. Real discipleship is when you take sides with Jesus, oftentimes, against yourself the bible says that our hearts are deceitful and wicked we can't just go with how we feel we can't just go with our heart we have to listen to our own logic and reason and and motion and emotions but we, but we can't let those things be the lord of everything we have to surrender those things to jesus to be a disciple means to live a life of knowing jesus it's not the kind of type of relationship that we have with our doctor or with our banker that we call them just when we need something. No, this is one of the most intimate relationships. Jesus invites us to really know him. And now that we have this new relationship with him, not based on my good works or on my own pedigree, but upon his holiness, I want to know him. I want to be conformed to him even if that means as Paul talks about in Philippians even if that means that I have to suffer like him now this is rare in American Christianity but this is what the world really needs they need to see a people who are not walking in the gray not straddling the fence of mediocrity or allegiance but of people who are serious about knowing God and loving him and following him, of people who are not afraid of what other people might think of them, but are willing to lay everything on the line to know and serve God. If the world saw this kind of life, 
or a group of people living this kind of life, don't you think they would stop and notice? You might ask, well, Jesus isn't walking in the flesh asking us, hey, Luke, come follow me, and then telling me what to put down and what to pick up and where to go anymore. So then how, pastor, would I do that? Oh, Jesus is still leading us. Through his spirit, he leads us. Through his word, he leads us. He speaks to us. I need a way of life that keeps me postured in a posture of listening to God. That keeps my mind aware of his presence. Not resolutions or goals necessarily. What we need is not goals. We need habits. We need rhythms. One where I receive supernatural power to actually walk in the way of Jesus, where I'm continually filled up with the Spirit of God and empowered to walk in wisdom and grace and the gifts that the Spirit brings. This quote by A.W. Tozer, the whole transaction of religious conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. We've almost forgotten that God is a person and as such he can be cultivated as any person can. The casualties of this mechanized religion are many. It's one thing to witness spiritually empty people outside the church. They're everywhere. What concerns me is meeting more and more Christians inside the church who suffer the same spiritual emptiness. See, a lot of people think that Christianity is about believing the right things. But that's, that's not all that it is. That's just such a small portion of it. There's a myth that information is what actually produces transformation. But again, that's a myth. Christianity, walking with Jesus, knowing God is about hearing from him and obeying him. Hearing from God through prayer, through the word, walking in obedience to the things he shows us and where he leads us. And I can't just make that a goal of my life. I need habits and rhythms to walk in that very thing. The two practices that have radically changed my life from spiritual emptiness to oftentimes spiritually overflowing is meditating and reading the word of God and learning how to pray. I don't do any of these things really well. I've got so much to grow in these, but reading and meditating and obeying the word of God and then communing with God in prayer. Now listen, just a little caveat. Both of these things are so critical, but neither of them are things that you can do when you're in a hurry. You can't pursue anything deeply when you're in a hurry. I've been working at the coffee shop this week writing this sermon. And I found that it's a hot spot um, for this one guy who meets people uh, on uh, internet dating sites. And I only say that because I saw him with three different girls in three different days. And I got my headphones in, but he kept asking the same questions that he asked the girl before. And I was like, at first I thought it was the same girl. I turned around, different girl, different day. They don't know each other. He's got this habit of just asking them. And I was reminded, just, just in the, I'm so glad I don't have to date today, right? And I mean, all, all that goes on with that, the websites and anyway, all that.
he just seemed to linger and ask these questions and their coffee date would go an hour and a half. And just reminded that you, you, you can't do anything well in a hurry. It just takes time. I, I can't go on a date with Ashley and ask her, hey, babe, tell me how's your soul? You got five minutes. No, no it doesn't work like that. To walk with God, we, we can't be in a hurry. And then secondly, we have to lay our yes down before we walk with him. We, a lot of times we walk with God, we read the word of God just to check it off the to-do list because our version people is going to hold us accountable or we got to do it so we can go on the youth mission trip. We got to be able to tell them we've been reading the word or even sometimes to make us feel better about ourselves. But very rarely do we take it from the word of God, ingested it into our heart, and then lived out through obedience. See, we got to put our yes down before we even open the word of God. It's amazing to know how Jesus walked through the word of God himself. Jesus, God of God, the very son of God, sent, <clears throat> incarnated himself to be one of us in the flesh. And yet he spent so much time cultivating and hearing from God through the word of God. Now, Jesus didn't have his own, his own copy. You've got copies. You probably brought one in here. You got it on an app. You got a couple more at home, likely. But Jesus didn't have his own material copy of the Bible, like most of us. He heard what was read aloud in the synagogue. He heard what his mama sang. He heard what the prayers his dad would pray. And yet throughout his recorded ministry, we see evidence of over 40 times of Jesus himself saying, as it is written. Jesus, as a young man, before his ministry would far ever start, he knew that communicating with his father through the word of God was of utmost importance. And that's what he did. He was always saying, as it's written, you see it in the temptations, as he's tempted several times. And even with scriptures, the enemy tempts him, and he returns that by saying, it is written. And like Christ, we will do well to make God's own words in the Bible the leading edge of our own understanding as we draw near to him. He did it at the beginning of his ministry. He did it all through his ministry. He did it at the end of ministry. Even as he hangs on the cross, he's quoting passages of Scripture. The centrality of God's written word, even in Jesus' life, he lived by what was written. What an amazing opportunity you and I have today to walk in the way of Jesus by knowing him and hearing from him and cultivating our relationship with him through the word of God. I'd encourage you, friends, to make it a habit to read God's word, to hear from God. Listen, not just to finish the reading plan. I'm not against the reading plans. My family's on a reading plan. But we've got to discipline ourselves to move a little slower. It's okay if you don't read the Bible in a year. It's okay if you don't read the whole Bible in 10 years. Well, what we're after is hearing from God. 
And so when you hear him speaking to you from the word, you stop, you pause, you meditate, you reminisce, and you obey it. And listen, if you're in this room and you say, Luke, I'm just not a reader, that's no excuse. On my app that I have, I can have the Bible read to me about 50 different translations in about 20 different accents. That can be really fun. You can have some, you don't have to read it. You can just listen to the word of God. I'm encouraging you to make it a habit, to have a rhythm of seeking to be a disciple by hearing and obeying the word of God. And here's how I know if you're doing it. When I ask you, what's God say? What's God say? It's amazing. Not just resolutions that make us more like God. It's the rhythm of posturing ourselves, of hearing and obeying. It leads to supernatural change. Romans 12 talks about that, renewing our mind. As we renew our mind, the selfish are made selfless. This is what we see in Levi, even here in our own passage. The greedy can become generous, the arrogant, humble, the bitter made forgiving. The angry becomes meek, the anxious, peaceful, the insecure, more and more confident. We can see real change in our lives, supernatural change, but we can't do it without him. Try all you want, discipline yourself all you think you need to. It's somewhat profitable, but unless you address the root, change will only be temporary. This is an invitation into the life of Jesus, and it's unbelievable. I was reading this morning and asking this question, Lord, what, what do your people need to hear today? I'd already written the sermon. I'd worked on it and led me to Romans 5 and verse 5. I think I have this in the notes somewhere, maybe pretty far down, Michael. Romans 5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I normally preach out of the ESV, and the ESV doesn't use real emotional language like this very often. I thought I'd clicked on the Passion or the NIV or the Living Bible, one of the others. and No, this is what it is. And I looked at this word, and that's exactly what it is. That This picture of the love of God, this is Paul inspired the Holy Spirit writing these words of Scripture down, that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that just such an amazing passage? I began to reminisce about all the times in my life where this thing happened. I grew up in a church home. I've told you that before. My mom and dad are church planters, and they started churches, and they moved to other churches that had been split because of some moral failure, and just piece that thing back together and love them well and then on and on and we moved all the time I think I was in 16 different houses before I graduated high school so we were always we just lived in a cardboard box sometimes you know you just had those things that were just in the cardboard box and I grew up in in church and I had some good youth pastors along the way but it wasn't until I was a junior in high school when 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 this became real to me I was going to a private school, Trinity Heights, and if you know much about private Christian schools, many of them are far from Christian. Um, 
And that was true here that, you know, you went to chapel every day because you had to. You did these things because you had to. It made you very cynical. And I'm new and I'm meeting all these people and it's just this cloud, this cynical cloud hovering over it. And we're having this spiritual emphasis week. And I just remember this very thing happening in Romans 5 in my heart. And I had never experienced it before. And I was a new kid. I had just started that school. And this is in the, um, as, 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 we're, as we're starting school in the fall. And I just remember, pastor got up and I don't remember the sermon, but I remember he said, if you want to pray for the lost people in this campus, I just invite you to come down front on a gym floor and just pray. And I was fighting with the Holy Spirit. I didn't want to embarrass myself. I was new. They were all laughing at the preacher. I was laughing at him too, probably. And again, I could just feel this lump in my throat. I was like, man, okay, Lord, I'm going to go, but I'm going to, I'm going to be there for like 10 seconds. I'm just going to do it because you told me to, and I'm going to go back to my seat. And I remember coming and getting on this gym floor. And God broke my heart for the lostness. It's something like I can't even explain. And I wanted to get up so bad and run to my seat, and I could not stop weeping. I meditated on that this very morning and said, God, what is that? He said, oh, I gave you my heart. My heart weeps for the lost. God did some pretty cool things on our campus that year. I remember going off to college and not having the parents and kind of doing my own kind of thing for a little bit. I didn't do anything bad, but I wasn't pursuing the heart of God. And I've told you this story before. I came home on Christmas break and my dad had this weird thing where we all had to pray before we opened presents. It was so annoying. I didn't want to pray. I just wanted to open the presents. I'm a, I'm a grown man. I'm, I'm in college, right? It's, it's my dad, well, if you want the present, son, this is how we do it. Okay. I remember going around praying, and it got to me. Jesus gave me his heart again. Just the love of God just poured out. I just began to weep. I couldn't even get through the prayer. I left that and changed schools a couple times. And I remember just as I went back this morning, just the lines dotted of where God stopped me in my tracks and poured just the liquid love of God into my heart. I remember I became a youth pastor and Robin, who's our kids minister, children's minister in the back, she was, she was a student then. And I remember Robin had all these drug head friends. I mean, they were, they were Levi in this passage. Like, I was like, Robin, where are you getting your friends? Robin is so sweet if you've met her. She's just a jewel. And then she, she brought the lioness, uh, most deceitful. They smelled terrible. I was like, where are these? And they're going to come on a trip with us. And we go to this place called Pig Camp. And it's really called Christian Springs, but it was kind of off the grid before off the grid was cool. And part of the recreation time was you had to go wrestle and tie up a pig. So they, everybody, all the kids called it Pig Camp. We go to Pig Camp. I got all these thugs with me. I know I'm going to be arrested for something. I'm so naive. And God begins to move. 
the first night they all escape out of the cabin and go smoke weed or who knows what else by the river. I catch them and make them throw all their drugs into the fire and then everyone gets high. It's like a, <laughs> no, so naive. I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea. It's like, maybe, maybe we should back away from this fire a little bit. This is. The next night, we're just there two nights. It's just a little weekend thing. And I'm up there. They had this hill we call the mountain, but it was really a hill. They had a little chapel on top of it, and I'm up there early. And I'm praying for these students. And I couldn't move for three hours because God just poured his liquid love into my heart again. I'm just weeping for those students. They were so hard and came from such a hard situation. So many strongholds of the enemy in their life. So many lies that they've been told and believed. They are so far from the love of God. There was no preaching that night. Aaron Watson was with me. He was leading some worship. And God radically changed those kids' lives. We come down off the mountain. They go get the rest of their drugs. Like I didn't learn from the first night. We threw those in the fire. We backed away from the fire before we all got high that time. Can I ask you this, friends? What's God saying to you? Listen, this isn't about the, the stuff. This is not about coming and sitting and singing and we do all those things. What's... I believe God's speaking to you. And he's wanting to heal some stuff from your past. And he's wanting to expose some lies that you believe that someone told you. And he's wanting to reorder some of your loves and passions and desires. See, just as Jesus called Levi, he, he's calling you. He's asking you, hey, hey, Luke, why don't you come and follow me? Well, where are we going, Jesus? Just Come and follow. Come and see. What's he saying to you today? I would love to hear. I'd love for you to put it on your card just so I could pray with you. Second, to live life in gospel community. We see this here in our passage. In verse 15, and as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. This is such an incredible scene. We see the disciples reclining together, and that would be a theme of their life. That's that they would do with Jesus, reclining around a table, walking from here to there, going, attending a party or a wedding. Much of their life together was just this, not just attending synagogue or morning prayers. They did life together. The next two scenes that we'll eventually get to in Mark chapter 2 are them getting in trouble as they did life together with Jesus. They're upset that the, they're not fasting like the rest of the people, and then they're upset of what they're doing or not doing on the Sabbath like the rest of the people. They're just they're doing life together. 
And I, I say gospel community, not just community, because this is not the show Friends, this is not the show Cheers, this is not Seinfeld. These disciples were radically different from each other. They were so radically different in our society, they would literally hate each other. They were on opposite sides of the political aisle, far more than that. The, 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 some were terrorists. One was a zealot, a radicalized zealot trying to overthrow Roman rule. Levi was this tax collector that no good Jew would ever share a meal with, ever. A traitor to the Jewish nation in collusion with Rome. Half of them were fishermen, probably grew up in the same community. Some were from Galilee, this agricultural region, others from foreigners. Yet with all of their faults and all their character flaws and all their differences, there's one thing that united them together was the call of Jesus on their lives. See, if your call's oriented, you get affinity. Like if we all got together and we wanted to have a party to... Cheer on the saints. Can't talk about the cowboys anymore. It's too painful. We're going to cheer on the saints together. We've got no good hopes for them. We can just cheer and, cheer and commiserate together. That would be affinity. All the people you agree with, you come together. But if you're Christ-oriented, it brings people together who disagree on everything else. But they come together not just for a party. They come together as spiritual family. That's what a gospel community is. Where all the other passions and all the other loves take a second seat to the primary calling, to the primary love, to the primary passions of knowing Jesus and making him known. What passes for most community in our day, maybe even largely in our church, is affinity. Everybody like me hangs out. They do what I like. But gospel community involves people totally unlike me that don't have anything in common with me, that come together with me because we're Christ-centered, because it's all about Jesus. And as we're walking closer to Jesus as disciples of him, followers of him, what will happen is we actually come together as a team. We begin to be a spiritual family following Jesus, carrying out his mission. You know, before Jesus, there was not a movement that actively sought to include every single human being, regardless of nationality, of ethnicity, of status, of income, of gender, more background, education. There was not a movement like it. And Jesus brought these people together and loved them and transformed them. So much so that the emperors of the day wrote in history books about how radical these people are, their love for each other. We're family because God's our father. And he tells us as we do life together, as we love each other, they will know you, that you are my disciples because you love one another. Our love will actually validate the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Or conversely, our lack of love will invalidate the gospel in their eyes. And that scares me to death, church. Because if 2020 showed us anything, is that we're not good at loving each other. Shane Claiborne has this quote. If you ask most people what Christians believe, they, they can tell you they believe Jesus is God's son and that he rose from the dead. But if you ask the average person how Christians live, they're struck silent. 
We have not shown the world another way of doing life. Christians pretty much live just like everyone else. They just sprinkle in a little Jesus along the way. And doctrine's not very attractive, even if it's true, he writes. Few people are interested in a religion that has nothing to say to the world and offers them only life after death when what people are really wondering is their life before death. Does that sting? When you do a little self-evaluation of your own life, are you just living for life after death? And have you not tasted and seen that you can have life before death? Follow that up with a quote by Ed Stetzer. In living together as God's people under his reign and lordship, our churches provide to the world the closest resemblance to the kingdom of God this side of eternity. We are the invisible kingdom made visible through the people of God and their shared lives on earth. This, this last three lines. We are the church where the world comes to window shop to see if they're buying it. And they come and attend our little gatherings and it doesn't look like we love each other any more than the rest of the world loves each other. And they see us fighting each other on social media and they see us spending our money the same way the world spends the money and doing all the things that the world does and they say, I'm not buying it, I'm not buying it. Disciples are people who hear and follow Jesus, live lives in biblical community, gospel community centered around the mission of Jesus. Now this may be the most countercultural heart of our church is that we want to follow Jesus into the very middle of the mission. We don't want missions to be just another ministry of our church. We want it to be the driving force because that's what the heart of Jesus is for. We use this phrase all the time, joining Jesus on the redemptive edge. This is what we see Jesus doing in this passage. Look at 15 again, verse 15. He's reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Most of you may have heard that the, the thing that they called Jesus was the friend of sinners. Well, Levi, what, what do you do right after you encounter the love and forgiveness of Jesus? What do you do? You tell all your friends. That's what he did. Luke actually goes a little further into the story, the Gospel of Luke, and reveals that this was actually this enormous banquet that Matthew himself held at his own, uh, at his own house in honor of Jesus. And it seemed like that he... He invited the only friends that he had, the tax collectors and other social outcasts, to meet Jesus. Now, Philip and Andrew did the same thing. Their first impulse of following Jesus was to invite their friends, and this is certainly what Matthew did. He didn't have any friends that were all put together. He was so thrilled to have found the Messiah that he wanted to introduce Jesus to all of his friends. So he held this large banquet in Jesus' honor, invited them all. This is such an incredible scene. Why would Matthew invite all those people? Because they were the only kind of people he knew. They were the only kind of people that would associate with a man like he was. 
He would have been a religious outcast, forbidden to enter any synagogue. Therefore, his only friends were the riffraff of society, the criminals, the thugs, the outlaws, the prostitutes. They were the ones that Matthew invited to his house to meet with Jesus and the other apostles, according to Matthew's account and uh, here in Mark, that the disciples gladly came to. That was something that they had already gotten used to. And then ask the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're asking the disciples this. Jesus overheard them. I love this. And he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came to call the righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And here we see the heart of Jesus. I've got that phrase the redemptive edge from a missiologist named Leslie Newbegin. This is his quote. The deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is. On the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. That's where Jesus is working. And that's where he's inviting us to participate with his work. Jesus is already on that redemptive edge. Where the kingdom of light and darkness meet, this is where he's inviting us to join him. Not, not just them then, us today. We've often used this phrase to describe our church, that we're a rescue ship. And I use that to contrast the cruise ship mentality. A lot of churches in the West, uh, they view church as more of a cruise ship, that you're going to show up and have all your needs met and, uh, and, and have an incredible potluck dinner or something, right? That, that, that's what church is supposed to be. And if the temperature's not right, you're going to complain to somebody. If the sound's not right, you're going to complain to somebody because you're there for you. You're there to have all your needs met. Uh, met. But, but there's no picture of that in the New Testament of a church like that. The church was not there for themselves. They were there for the lost, for the last, for the least. And so all the religious establishment come and tap Jesus on the shoulder and say, Jesus, you can't be doing this kind of thing. Why? Are you? you know what she's done? You know what he's done? You know what they've done? And you're reclining at a table, which meant fellowship, and you are, you are enjoying fellowship with them? And as only Jesus can. You see the sarcasm in his answer. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus, the great physician. Friends, you may have forgotten, but this is the call on your life. God has sent you to be light in the midst of darkness. Now, I know you think it's just to be a plumber or an architect or a teacher. I know. And tomorrow you're going to put that hat on and you're going to go be the best at what he's called you to be there. But the reason you're there is to be light in the midst of darkness. That's the real reason. And a lot of times we just lose focus of what we're doing. Anyone ever started a diet at the beginning of the year? And then by like, you know, it's a terrible time to go on a diet. It's cold outside. And all you want is carbs, right? That's, that's, that's all I want. And so my diet lasts four days. And then I forget about it for two months. And then my pants don't fit. And then I remember, oh, I was going to go on a diet. If we're not careful, the enemy 
robs this passion and purpose from us by all the cares of life. All the bills to pay and things to show up for and sports the kids play and all the crisis and then the health and, and then all the things that we do that we forget that your neighbors that don't know Jesus, you're their greatest hope for knowing Jesus. As a matter of fact, God moved you from wherever you were to there so that you could, so you could actually announce that the kingdom of God is not far off because you live next to them. Isn't that incredible? God sent you to be the light in darkness. Remember, it's not just a goal, but a habit. What you need is the heart and the habit. The Romans 5 is the heart. You remember how God has just poured his liquid love into your life through the Holy Spirit. How he's loved you and been there for you and forgiven you and taken care of you and shown mercy on you and so tender with you. And then he gives you the heart of Jesus and you begin weeping for your neighbors and your co-workers. And maybe some of you there, my encouragement is just to take a risk to whatever he's asking you to do, even tomorrow. Maybe you'd ask one of your coworkers if you can pray with them before on your lunch break. Doesn't have to be anything crazy. Maybe when they can ask you what you did this weekend. Listen, let me tell you this. This weekend, I had the liquid love of God poured into my heart. See how they respond to that. You can just take it. Take that. Roman said it. You can just take it. Many of us, we just got to step out of our comfort and our apathy and our vision for our own life about getting all the things and having all the experience. And we've got to repent of those things and those pursuits. And we've got to join God in his work around us. He sent you on a rescue mission. Joined into the local community as believers on this rescue ship. Listen, the heart of heaven this is, this is what beats is for the last, the lost, and the least. Hebrews describes it as this great cloud of witnesses cheering us on. Luke 15 says that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents or the lost comes home. There's this incredible picture of this great crowd in heaven peering down on us, cheering us on, that we would take the mission of God to the people around us that we would tell them of the love of God for them, that we would be radically generous with our finances and with our forgiveness and with our time. Well, Luke, how can I do this? Well, you can pray lunch tomorrow. You can invite your neighbor over for dinner. You can ask a coworker to grab coffee. You can show up. There's probably a group tonight serving downtown to hub serving the last, the lost, and the least. And you'll have an opportunity to sit across from someone and hear their story and listen to them and look for an opportunity where you can share that God sees them and he knows them and he loves them and he wants to restore them. Let me promise you, when you take a step, Jesus is going to meet you there. He's not actually going to meet you there. He's already there. He's there working. We're going to take communion in just a minute. I'm done. I'm going to invite the band up. What I want you to do, if you could just get into a quiet space right where you're at. And I want you to tune your heart to heaven. Would you, would you listen for the spirits speaking? For some of you, you're here and you've never crossed the line of faith and trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And 
You feel, you feel him calling you. I, I know it. In your heart, you know this is what he's asking you to take a step. Hey, come follow me. Would you listen and respond this morning? Others of you, it's he asked you to do something you didn't want to do. And so you just laid the gospel down on the ground somewhere. His invitation is to come back to him. Some of you have been so hurt. You've been taken advantage of. And you've bought the lie that you've got to get your act together first before you come to him. And that's just not true. Levi was, was at his tax table when Jesus came and said, Hey, buddy, why don't you come and follow me? Maybe you just feel like you're in a stale, dry place. And maybe you just invite, as Romans 5 says, the Holy Spirit just to, to be the white, hot, passionate love of God in your heart. Maybe you would ask the Lord that he would kindle, rekindle the passion of your own heart and life for him. God, we thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for 13 years of faithfulness to this little church and all the churches that we've been able to plant and the missionaries we've been able to support and the 10,000 or so meals we've been able to give out the last several years, the needs that have been met. Well, Lord, as we look back, we're reminded of your faithfulness to us. Not just as a church, but personally in the last 13 years. I've seen my girls grow up and Hudson be born and he's growing up into a young man. And you're just so faithful to me. All the mistakes and the sin and the mess I make out of my own life, yet you're just still so tender to me. Forgiving. Your kindness leads me to repentance. It's not even your wrath that leads me. It's your kindness. God, I pray that over this church, not just as a whole, but the individuals in every seat, the teenagers in the room. Lord, would you speak clearly to them? And when they risk following you, Lord, would you give us your heart? Would it come with tears? just as you looked over the city and were filled with compassion as you wept for them. Lord, do in us what you want to do. It's in your mighty name we pray, amen. I encourage you to keep listening for the Spirit's leading. We are going to have communion. Our communion servers are here. You don't have to be a part of our church.